The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. A reading from Exodus 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens? That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They had met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. God, we thank you for your word. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's great to, a great joy for me to be back with you uh, here again. In looking at my calendar, I saw it was a year ago, uh, third Sunday of October 2021, that I last preached at All Saints Church. So you and I are making this something of a habit, uh, but I, for one, am glad for it. Uh, bad circumstances challenge faith. And faith is unexpectedly challenged during unexpectedly 
bad circumstances. Uh, my wife and I recently had such an experience. Uh, in September, we visited London and Paris, a special two-week trip to celebrate our 30th anniversary, which had taken place in, in July. And the first week in England was uh, absolutely phenomenal and deep, deeply moving. Uh, although we had planned our trip months ago, uh, in God's providence, we arrived during the period of mourning for Queen Elizabeth's uh, death. So we were able to see the, the funeral cortèges, the ceremonies of state as Charles ascended as king, and really some profound experiences that I suspect I'll never experience again in life, like walking into a park and seeing it completely covered in floral bouquets or sitting in absolute silence with 10,000 other people as we were watching the jumbotrons at the funeral. I'll just never have experiences like that again. So an absolute great time. Well, our time in Paris was to be the culmination of this trip, but we weren't in Paris 30 minutes before my wallet was stolen on the metro. Uh, which is their subway system there. It was one of these, the metros are always packed. It's one of these situations where, you know, you press in, and I felt somebody press in really hard behind me, just thinking, oh, they're just trying to get into the train. And 30 seconds later, I said, oh, no. This is one of these press-ins where they come and they reach behind you and reach into your pockets, and they're pressing in so hard to desensitize you from what they're doing. And sure enough, that's what it was. But unfortunately, I was 32 sec 30 seconds too late in that realization. And so uh, the rest of the day was spent filling out police reports and canceling credit cards and everything you have to do uh, when that happens. So they also got $33 remaining on my Chick-fil-A gift card and that one, <laughs> that one really hurt. So, but it's shocking for me to observe in my own life how quickly my spiritual and emotional uh, you know, condition deteriorates at unexpected turns of events how quickly I go from feeling elation to just really utter doom and isolation and abandonment from God and hopelessness. It's amazing how quickly those emotions can swing when something strikes. Uh, and perhaps you're like me. You know, it's not those chronically nagging things that really impact my faith. You know, the kind of the chronic health conditions or maybe the, the, the nagging things at work that never seem to get better. That's okay. But it, it, it's that sudden stuff. It's, it's that stuff where life goes off the rails suddenly. A car crash, uh, a sharp financial setback, uh, an unexpected family death. And I think even worse are those times where there was a little hope thrown in before the crash. Uh, for instance, a cancer that seems to have gone into remission, but then it comes back with a vengeance. Or you know, going three rounds of interviews uh, for a job only to get the call that you weren't selected. Or, or those, those who've gone through the terrible ordeal of, uh, of miscarriage after learning they're pregnant. You know, those, those disaster after hope patterns often sting the most and, and really can lead to profound, series, uh, 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 profound seasons of doubt in God's promises, in God's existence, in God's power, in God's goodness. Um, so Exodus 5 here deals with a community struggling to trust in one of God's promises, uh, specifically his promise of deliverance. That's one of our key words here, deliverance, uh, because circumstances in Exodus 5 have turned out so spectacularly bad. And, and as such, I think Exodus 5 really serves two purposes for us. One, it instructs us as an anti-example in a sense, it, it's an exhortation to not do what that community did in response to trial. Uh, 
But positively, I think it also provides some comfort to us in our human condition. Because we see that we go through the same sort of struggles that this faith community went through when dealing with unexpectedly bad circumstances. Now, recall briefly that this promise for deliverance was given in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, and God spoke to Moses. Then the Lord said, this is Exodus 3, 7 to 8, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And this word to deliver, this Hebrew word to deliver, is really the key theme of our passage today. And this word actually originated from the physical concept of snatching, okay? To snatch somebody out of a danger and, and place them in a safe place. And so you can see how metaphorically this idea of deliverance is to take from a bad circumstance, to snatch out of a bad circumstance, and to put into a good circumstance, and you can see that that's exactly what God says he's going to do here. I'm going to take you from slavery and bondage, bad circumstance, and I'm going to drop you into a land flowing with milk and honey, good circumstance. And it was such a great promise that, you know, it took people a while to get on board that this could be possibly be true. You know, Moses had to go with this back and forth with God. You know, is this really going to happen? And the elders and the people had to get on board. But finally... At the end of chapter 4, we have that great final verse, and they believed. So everybody's on board. They think God can actually do this. His deliverance is going to come through for them. As we go through our passage today, I'd like to propose that we call to mind something in our own life where maybe we struggle to believe that God would deliver and see if we can see ourselves in the community here. And how would we apply uh, what we're going to see here to our personal situation? So, chapter 5, here we are. The people are on board. It's now game day. Moses and Aaron are going to go to Pharaoh. Everybody's psyched. Okay. But how do we keep faith in God's promises of deliverance when under personal attack? Our first point. Moses and Aaron go in strong. Verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Let my people go. We see their confidence. It's proclamation language. It's prophetic formula language. And Pharaoh's response, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Okay, well, that didn't work. So Moses and Aaron try a different tact. You know, uh, but you can see that in verse 3, they have kind of a deterioration in, their, in both their confidence and their approach. We see this in two ways. First, the verbal form changes to, let us go, please. And then it turns from approach to more of a human argument. Hey, hey, just to let you know, if you don't let us go, God may strike us down, and that may impact your labor force. And also, we may be struck with the sword, and that's kind of bad because that implies that an invading army is going to come into your land and attack and kill us. And you probably don't want an invading army in your country, do you? So, hey, for those good reasons, it's really, it's really to your benefit if you, if, if you let us go here, okay? So, so please let us go. <laughs> so, Pharaoh's response, 
turns personal. Why do you take the people away from their work? You make them rest from their burdens, verse 5. In other words, you know, you're just lazy. You're promoting laziness. Um, you catch the two conflicts going on here? You know, first there's this conflict between God and Pharaoh up here, because in verse 2, Pharaoh's actually asked the central question, even if it's in a mocking way. Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? And God's going to answer that question in the next 10 chapters, all the way to when Pharaoh's armies drowned in the Red Sea. But that divine conflict up here between Pharaoh and God is manifesting itself now at the human level as personal attacks on the messengers of deliverance. You, you. And I'd like to argue that the relationship between these two conflicts is universally true. The unbelieving's world question is, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? And the reason this gets translated down into a personal attack on the messengers of God's deliverance is because God's message of deliverance always implies a loss to my self-sovereignty. If I have to defer to God's will by letting these people go, then I have to give up my claim that I'm sovereign over this workforce. Uh, Christian, listen to the words of Jesus that he speaks to the 12, who's, who he is about to send out in Matthew 10. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. What, what, what is that message? That's a deliverance message. But not, but a few verses later, Jesus warns, I'm sending you out a sheep amongst wolves, and all men will hate you because of me. For a deliverance message. Why? Because getting in God's plan always requires a loss of self-sovereignty. Okay, second. So we see how God exhorts us to keep faith in his promises of deliverance even when circumstances turn unexpectedly uh, worse. You know, we could almost say to this point in the passage that, okay, no harm, no foul. We went in, we talked to Pharaoh, we said, let, you know, let the people go. He said no, but okay, well, it's just back to the Monday morning grind, you know, same, we, we tried. I told God it wasn't going to work anyway, so, you know, here, here we are, right? Okay? Well, surprise. Pharaoh tightens the screws. Verse 6. That same day, the text says, Pharaoh commands the taskmasters and the foremen to implement new work terms. Uh, and just so we understand the groups involved here, you know, the, the taskmasters are the Egyptian slave drivers who work for Pharaoh. The foremen are Israelites who are over the Israelite workforce. I mean, if you just think of, uh, you know, a roofing company in Green Bay, right? You know, usually the owners and the leaders of the roofing company are of ethnicity A and speak language A, but... When you go to the work site, the foreman of the crew is generally ethnicity B, and it speaks language B, and that's because that's what helps get the work done. That's what helps get the work done, and it's been known from you know, time immortal that it helps to have you know, people of the same who are like you leading you as foremans, right? So you've got Pharaoh, you've got taskmasters under him, then you've got the Israelite foreman, and then you've got the Israelites actually uh, doing the work. And the work terms are pretty simple to understand. Same quarter of bricks, but now you don't get straw. You got to get it yourself. Uh, chop straw was used to 
increase the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the binding properties of the clay bricks that were made. If you, if you go to Egypt, you'll see plenty of examples of bricks you know, stuffed with straw. straw. It, held a, it helped the clay hold together more easily while the bricks were being formed and drying. And people found that it also helped the bricks be stronger in terms of the construction over time. And we now know with science that that's because the humic acid of the, of the straw breaks down and actually binds to the clay and makes the bricks stronger. So this is, this is normal stuff, okay? And verse 12 says that they were now going out and gathering stubble for straw. And the sense here is that they're probably frantically trying to run around to find anything that's gonna substitute for straw grass, twigs, anything that's going to work. And to add insult to injury, in verses 8 and 9, Pharaoh's piling on the emotional pressure too. Verse 8, he calls him lazy. And even worse, in verse 9, he says that he is adding to their workload so that you pay no regard to lying words. In other words, it must have gotten back to Pharaoh that there was this talk of God delivering these people from their bondage. And Pharaoh wants to kill off any hope that this could be true. There isn't going to be any deliverance from your so-called God. Stop listening to these lying words. And then the work rules are also so hard that the foremen are actually getting beaten. Christian, do you feel that the challenges against Christianity in this country are getting tougher I think the Freilichs almost alluded to it a little bit in their prayers, right? Guess what? You're objectively correct. People who study these things like Pew Research, uh, for instance, you may have seen the Pew Research last study that came out in saying that in 1970, 90% of the U.S. population self-identified as Christians. That's now down to 68%. And if this trend continues by 2070, Christianity will actually be a minority worldview uh, in this culture. Pew also does a lot of studies on persecution. Uh, and there's two aspects of persecution, as you may know. One's governmental, you know, laws or arrests or stuff. The other is social pressure, right? And they say study social pressure, they objectively determine that the social pe- pressure is, is picking up. So guess what? You think, they're getting, you think things are getting harder? Objectively, that's true. But one thing I've noticed in my own thinking, okay, and you tell me if you fall into this trap or not too, okay, is a sort of faithless hand-wringing about this. Um, how are my children going to make it in this culture? How are my grandchildren going to make it in this culture? If public schools get so bad that it's not going to be an option to send my uh, Christian, or it's not going to be an option for my Christian grandkids to go to a public school, how are my children going to be able to pay, pay, pay for, for private school? And, you know, there's this kind of hand-wringing we can get into about all this. Uh, A couple of years back, I was listening to a Christian radio station. I think it was in central Indiana. And by God's grace, you will find no shortage of Christian radio stations in central Indiana. Um, uh, And I was, you know, I was kind of, the talk was about this sort of hand-wringing. And I remember one panelist saying, well, if things do get worse, Don't you think God has already prepared our children and grandchildren to be the type of Christians who will be able to operate in that environment? There was that sudden perspective of faith I'd been sorely needing in all this, that faith in God's plans for deliverance are not thwarted by unexpectedly bad circumstances. Uh, Christian, uh, Jesus says in Luke 18, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
But this is the same Jesus who says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Can both those statements be theologically true at the same time? Where God can accomplish all his redemptive work that he wants for the church, even if by the time he arrives there's no faith left on the earth? I think he's saying that rhetorically, but, but you know, can those be true? Yes, they can. Because God's plans for deliverance will not be thwarted no matter how bad circumstances appear. Okay, so first point, uh, keeping faith in God's promises when under personal attack. Second point, keeping faith in, prom in God's promises deliverance when circumstances turn unexpectedly bad. Third point, we'll see an exhortation to keep faith in God's promises deliverance when human options fail. Okay, so in verse 15, the foremen with their beaten backs do what I think any rational person would do, which is they go to the head honcho, they go to Pharaoh, and they see if they can talk this through, right? Hey, Pharaoh, uh, you know, we're having to make the same number of bricks here, but we don't have straw, and we're being beaten because we can't make that quota. And verse 16, you know, I hate to say it, but it's, it's, it's kind of your fault because you've been unreasonable here. Because the phrase in verse 16 is, the fault is in your own people, but it's probably like a, a, a polite way of saying it's your fault, but doing it in a way that doesn't kind of maybe come across so strong, uh, probably the way people around Putin talk to him. Um, but, uh, but Pharaoh just doubles down in verse 17, okay? Idol, idol, he says it twice. You know, it's kind of like this movie villain, idol, idol. You know, no straw, same quota, get out of here, get back to work, discussion over. That's essentially the, the, the whole substance of that conversation in a couple of verses. And it, verse 19 makes it clear that at this point, the foremen realize they are in real trouble. Verse 19, the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks to your daily task each day. And the word trouble really probably kind of carries a connotation of calamity here. We are in a calamity. We are in a really tough time. We are in bad shape. We are in life or death shape right here. All human arguments have failed. All human recourse has failed. And we're just going to be worked to death. And we're going to fall over and die. Now, at the beginning of our talk, when I asked each of us to think through a situation where, maybe, where we may be prompted to doubt God's promise of deliverance, there were undoubtedly some of us who said, well, I wish I could expand that category a bit. You know, I'd love for God to save this family member, but I know that's not a promise. Or I know there's no human hope for my health issue anymore, but that's not a promise from God. Um, and that's true. Some things are not promises. Um, but, and we don't have an ironclad, you know, promise of deliverance on that one. But I think it's probably good that we do have a few of these in our life because it points us to the one who is the only power who can solve it. Um, remember what God told to Moses in Exodus 3? But I know this king will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. That's me. I know this isn't going to work out unless it's me. Okay? Christian, there are some things that only Jesus can do for you. Nobody else. No one but Jesus can die for you. No one but Jesus can take you to be with his father. No one but Jesus can ensure that you wake up in the morning breathing. Keep faith when human options fail. What else do we have? Last point, and very briefly. God's faith in God's promises keep faith in God's promises of deliverance even when the community of faith is in disarray. 
Now, I just said that all human options had failed, but that's not entirely true because you can always vent to leadership. That's, that's sarcasm, okay? But, okay, but verse 20, foremen do come out, and they make a beeline right to Moses and Aaron, and they have some pretty choice words to say. And being foremen, it was probably not flowery language, um, but what is recorded is, is three, uh, three phrases. First of all, the Lord look on you and judge, which is probably more in the sense of God judge you, <laughs> okay, okay? And you made us stink with a bad odor, the phrase literally says, okay? Well, we can imagine what that is, okay? And you put a sword in the Egyptians' hands to kill us, which is basically saying your actions signed our death warrant, okay? And Moses, he turns to God. Now, to Moses' credit, he does a couple of things right. First, he does turn to God. He doesn't, you know, bicker back to the foreman. And the second is he implores the Lord on behalf of the people's situation. He's not there just to gripe about how he got a tongue lashing from the foreman, which is probably what I would have done. Um, But on the flip side, his faith in God's promises of deliverance are absolutely shot at this point. And it really ends at the end of the passage with him saying, you have not delivered your people at all. Okay, and the Hebrew phrasing of that is really interesting. Literally, it's, it's a construction where it's to deliver, not you have delivered. And in Hebrew, when you, when you combine that, in, that, in, that infinitive with a verb, it's saying, you really didn't deliver, okay? <laughs> this is anti-deliverance, which is why the ESV properly translated, you haven't delivered your people at all, okay? Have you ever been something or been part of a something in the church that goes off the rails? Uh, maybe a small group that isn't clicking or a sharp decision or uh, a sharp debate over a decision that has to be made. Uh, I suspect we've all been in situations where unexpectedly bad circumstances can send the community of God into disarray. COVID, you know, unfortunately did that in many churches. But even if a community of faith is in disarray, it is not a sign that God's promise of deliverance has gone off the rails. All right, so let's wrap up. You know, next week, you'll see that God is actually gracious to Moses and restores his hope right away. If we were to go two verses later, you'd see that God takes care of this. But I'm really glad our chapter ends here because it means we have to end here. And I think it's good for us to sit a while in this pit of delusionment. It speaks to our human condition. Sometimes we are just stuck in despair and hopelessness. Sometimes it seems God hasn't delivered us at all. But the exhortation of Exodus 5 by negative example is to to try not to get there to develop patterns of faith even when life goes off the rails. And, you know, as we do so, we can look to the example of the pioneer of our faith, Jesus Christ. See Christ on the cross. Do we see Christ doubting his father's deliverance as he is personally attacked? King of the Jews, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. You're the son of God. Come down from the cross. No. Jesus did not waver. Do we see Christ doubting his father's deliverance as things go from bad to worse, from arrest to beating to death? No, we don't. 
Do we see Christ doubting his father's deliverance as no human options remain? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do we see Christ doubting his father's deliverance when his community of faith is in disarray? You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. No. Christians have hope. Jesus is more than just our example of faith in God's deliverance. He is the deliverer. The deliverer to whom all other deliverances, including the Exodus, are designed to point. And the opening words of Galatians, I think, are a fitting doxology to this, our great deliverer. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.